So we've been working our way through the book of 1 Corinthians, and uh, today we find ourselves in the latter part of 1 Corinthians 15. Paul has written this letter to the church in Corinth. He's laid the foundation of the gospel and addressed some specific issues. In the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about resurrection in particular, and the resurrection from the dead. And as we have approached that topic last week, we saw that Christ's victory over death serves as motivation to share the gospel and it should serve as motivation to deny ourselves for the sake of the gospel, to lay down our lives for the sake of the gospel. And with that in mind, with that foundation in mind, I want to look at the rest of 1 Corinthians 15. If you'll stand with me for the reading of God's Word. 1 Corinthians 15, starting at verse 35. But someone will say, How are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? You fool, that which you sow does not come to life unless it dies, and that which you sow you do not sow the body which is to be, but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a a body just as He wished, and to each of the seeds a body of its own. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one flesh of man and another flesh of beasts, and another flesh of birds and another of fish. There are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly is one, and the glory of the earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for stars differ from star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man is from the earth, earthly. The second man is from heaven. As is the earthly, so also are those who are earthly. And as is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. Just as we have borne the image of the earthly, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable. And this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading, the hearing, and the applying of His Word. Amen. So if you've been here before, you're thinking, 
there's no way he's going to tackle all those verses. I want to focus the majority of our time today on verse 58. Paul spends verses 35 through 57 talking about this resurrection and giving us these details of this resurrection. And and really, he gives us a lot of detail, but it's so far beyond what we can even imagine. He talks about how our bodies are laid into the ground, they're planted like a seed, and they're raised imperishable. And that it's just a, this body is like a seed, it's just a bare, it's, it's parts of what will eventually be. That it's, it is born out of, that my, my eternal body, your eternal body will be born out of what we have in this earthly body, but it's, but this earthly body is just a bare grain of what will be. That there's something amazing that God is going to do. And he says, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. And the perishable can't inherit the the perishable, the imperishable. But, he says, I tell you this mystery, because of what Christ has done, because of God's plan to raise the dead, that we will indeed be raised and we will be given heavenly bodies. And death will be swallowed up. And we can say, death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? Because thanks be to God, we have victory over death through our Lord Jesus Christ. And he says all that. And then he says, verse 58, therefore, here's what I want to tell you. I want to focus primarily on verse 58 this morning because I feel it's necessary in part because it's the application of those verses that precede it. It begins with, therefore. And it sounds cliche-ish, and we've all heard it many, many times when you see the word therefore, you have to ask, what is it there for? But it's true. We need to see that this is indeed the application of those verses, of those principles he has just talked about, the truths he has just talked about. And we want to be focused on application, folks. We want to be doers, not just hearers of the Word. So that's in part why I want to focus on verse 58. And the other part, I want to in part focus on verse 58 because I have very much needed this verse in my own life this week. And I've found it to be an incredible encouragement for me, personally, to persevere. Frankly, when there were many times throughout this week that I just wanted to call it quits. That I just wanted to say, that's it, I'm done, no more. And that may come as a shock to you, but it shouldn't. Because frankly, I fight the flesh just like you. I struggle in the faith, just like you. And Satan whispers in my ear, just like he whispers in yours. 1 Corinthians 10.13 is of great encouragement to me. It says, no temptation has overtaken you. The word temptation there can also be understood as trial. No trial, no no problem, no consequence, no, no thing you face has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. So God says that truth to us, and Satan whispers in our ear, and he says, you know what, this situation that you're going through, it's not common to man. Nobody knows what you're going through. Nobody's experienced what you're you're experiencing. You are alone in this. And God says, no temptation has overtaken you, except that which is common to man. Others have been through this. And Satan says, God's not faithful. He's not in it. He's not here. He's not going to rescue you. 
And God's Word says, no, He is faithful. And Satan says, there's no way out. There's no way of escape. This will be the end of you. And God's Word says, there is a way out. He will provide, God will provide the way of escape. And Satan says, this is beyond what you can endure. And God's Word says, so that you will be able to endure it. So I needed verse 58 this week. As Satan whispered in my ear, I needed verse 58. And I need verse 58 every week. And I pray this morning that you are challenged and encouraged by this verse this morning. Just as much as I have been in preparing this message. So let's look again at 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58. Paul writes, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. This verse, Paul encourages the church in Corinth to be firm in faith, eager to serve, and confident in Christ's promises. These are our three points. So let's start with the first point. Firm in the faith. Paul encourages the church in Corinth to be firm in the faith. He begins by saying, therefore, right, therefore, in light of all these things, in light of the resurrection, in light of the fact that we are facing eternity either with Christ in heaven or apart from Christ in a place called hell. If you're a believer, it's with Christ in heaven. Therefore, in light of this fact that we're living for far more than what this world can afford, Therefore, my beloved brethren, those who are in that position, he says, be steadfast and immovable. These two terms are similar. And they go hand in hand, really. Steadfast refers to being firmly established in one's position or opinion. And it appears two other times in Scripture, this word steadfast. First time we see it is uh, 1 Corinthians 7, verse 37, where Paul writes, he who stands firm, he who is steadfast in his heart, being under no constraint, but has authority over, over his own will. Th this idea that you are steadfast in your heart, that your opinion is set, you are strong, you are sure of your position. It's used again in Colossians 1.23. If indeed you continue in the faith, Paul writes, firmly established and steadfast, not moved away from the hope of the Gospel that you have heard. Steadfast. Firmly secure in your opinion and what you believe. So that's steadfast. And the term immovable is used only here in Scripture. It's the only place where the word appears in all of the New Testament. But it carries the idea of not being readily shaken in one's opinion or beliefs. So being immovable, not being easily shaken, is a result of being steadfast, having deeply rooted beliefs or convictions. For example, I'll use Richard Wall as an example. Richard Wall, right, may be fully convinced that Ford trucks are better than Chevys. He's steadfast in that position. And because he's steadfast, he's immovable. He's not shaken from that position. When he sees a Chevy commercial on TV, he's not shaken. When another fisherman asks him, when are you going to start driving a real truck? He's not shaken. He's steadfast and therefore he is immovable. For a more spiritual example, if you'd like one, one may be steadfast in the view that God causes all things to work together for good. 
one may be steadfast, convinced in their mind that that is the truth. That God causes all things to work together for good, not for all, but for those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose, Romans 8.28. And being steadfast in that view, the result is that even in the midst of circumstances, difficult circumstances, they're unshaken. They're immovable. And therefore, they're firm in their faith. And they're convinced that God is in control. And whatever they are going through, it is for their good. We've all seen pictures or heard stories of cars that have left the roadway and collided with a tree. And the results of such crashes are often fatal. Why? Because trees are steadfast. They're deeply rooted. And therefore, they're immovable. They're not easily shaken. Even when a car, some three or 4,000 pound vehicle, collides with a tree, the tree remains and the car is often destroyed. In the same way, Paul is encouraging the church in Corinth to be steadfast, to be fully convinced of the resurrection, and therefore immovable, not easily shaken, to be immovable in living for the Lord. He knows that if they are deeply rooted in the Gospel, then they'll persevere in living in light of the Gospel. You see, when Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus, he clearly had the same idea in mind. Ephesians 4, verses 11-14 through says this. He writes, And He gave some as, as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints for the work of the service, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we attain, we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness in Christ. In other words, until we are all deeply rooted, steadfast in God's faithfulness to carry us through to completion. Until that day. As a result, when that happens, as a result, verse 14, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. When that happens, we will be therefore immovable. And yet, we see just the opposite in many believers today. We see believers being tossed to and fro like a dinghy in a hurricane. Whether it's by pop culture psychology, Dr. Phil or Oprah Winfrey or whatever else is on TV or in magazines that people read. or Maybe it's even pop music theology. Maybe even Christian pop music theology that we de- derive our theology from Christian pop music or from the DJs on the radio who deliver the Christian pop music instead of from our Bibles. Shame on us. Or whatever else comes down the pike that delivers this, this uh, tossing to and fro. What's the solution? The solution is a deeper understanding of God's Word. The solution is an accurate understanding of the Gospel so deeply rooted in the truth that we are unshakable. The solution is to have an accurate view of the resurrection and then therefore an eternal focus. I see people get tossed to and fro in their lives all the time. And they get sidetracked on serving the, away from serving the Lord. And they're tossed to and fro seeking things of the world because they've lost sight of eternity. And they need to therefore have an eternal focus. They need to be firmly rooted in the truth 
They need to be steadfast and therefore immovable. So Paul, having encouraged the church in Corinth to be, number one, firm in the faith, let's now look at the second point in our outline. The second point in our sermon outline is, number two, eager to serve. Paul says, 1 Corinthians 15, 58 again, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Notice first that Paul is speaking not of their work, but instead of the work of the Lord. Thus, he's referring to their participation in what God is doing, namely the building up of His church. So Paul undoubtedly has proclaiming the gospel evangelism and helping believers grow discipleship in mind. And I was talking during uh, the fellowship time before the service about how sometimes within evangelical Christianity, we, we've talked about vocation, the theology of vocation, and how we're to honor God in our vocation, how God gives us a vocation and we're to use that to glorify Him, and how sometimes in evangelical Christianity, we take that too far, and we, we think that everything we do is the work of the Lord, and that that's all that God calls us to do. But He does also call us to specific work of the Lord, like evangelism and discipleship. Go therefore and make disciples. He calls us to do that. Yes, He may call us to be a computer repair person. Yes, He may call us to clean surgical instruments in the hospital. But He calls us, and He calls us to do that for His glory. But He also calls us to do specific work. Gospel work. The work of building up the church. And some want to swing too far and say, and I have this tendency to swing too far, that glorifying God is always evangelism. Glorifying God is always teaching believers. Or some want to swing the other way. Well, you're just glorifying God in everything you do all the time. There's no need to evangelize or disciple. And God says both are true. And undoubtedly, Paul, when he talks about abounding in the work of the Lord, has building up of the church evangelism and discipleship in mind here. We know this because he stressed the same idea back in chapter 14. 1 Corinthians 14.12, he said, So also you, since you are zealous of the spiritual gifts, seek to abound for the edification, the building up of the church. You're zealous for spiritual gifts? Seek to build up the church of Christ. You see, he wants them to be used by God in his work of building his church. And he is clear, by the way. He's clear that the Corinthian believers are to be doing this always. By the way, I thought I was smart, so I decided I'd do a little word study of the word always. And uh, I found out that it means without reference to time. It means all the time. It means always. And imagine that. It just means always. That's what it means. So he says, always. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. And the word abounding carries the idea of considerably more than what's expected. It's the same Greek word we see in the feeding of the 5,000 in Matthew 14. In verse 20 of Matthew 14, we read this. They ate, the crowd, the 5,000, they ate and were satisfied. They picked up what was left over. The Greek word is abounding. They picked up the, the abundance. They picked up that which was left over of the broken pieces. Twelve full baskets immeasurably more than what they would have expected. It's also used in 2 Corinthians 1.5 where we read, For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, 
so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. And again in Romans 5.15, But the free gift is not like the transgression, for if by the transgression of the one many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. When quantifying God's grace, the word Paul uses is abundant. Why? Because God's grace is not quantifiable. It's more than what can be fathomed. It's overflowing. So when you combine these words, always and abounding, as Paul did, it is clear that he is talking about real and faithful service to the Lord. I may get myself in trouble here, and I, I talked to my wife about this and said, I, I need to be careful in how I present this. But I want you to know, he's not talking about sacrificing 30 minutes, or even three hours for that matter, of your week to be about the Lord's work. He's talking about far more than that. And this should be convicting. We're not talking about occasionally giving up an evening of television so that we can prepare a Sunday school lesson. Paul says, always abounding. And that refers to never ceasing to do considerably more than what might be thought of. How many of us? How many of us serve in this way? John MacArthur, in writing about always abounding in the work of the Lord, he says this. He says, quote, What a word Paul gives to the countless Christians who work and pray and give and suffer as little as they can. How can we be satisfied with the trivial, insignificant, short-lived things of this world? How can we take it easy when so many around us are dead spiritually and so many fellow believers are in need of edification, encouragement, and help of every sort? When can a Christian say, I've served my time, I've done my part, let the others do the work now. Those are hard words. You know the old saying, better to burn out than to rust out, right? I'm afraid most Christians today are in far greater danger of rusting out than they are of burning out. And the things we burn out on, by the way, are often not the Lord's work. You know, there's danger also, though. I don't want to make it sound as though there's just danger in doing nothing. MacArthur's point, and Paul's point here, I think is that there's danger in doing just enough to satisfy your conscience. There's danger in that. There's danger in saying, well, I do this in the church. I do that in the church. Paul does not have these things in mind. He does not have ushering in mind. He does not have being a deacon. He doesn't even have being a pastor in mind. He doesn't have sitting and preparing for Sunday morning by preparing a Sunday school lesson or preparing for Wednesday night prayer meeting. He doesn't even have ten hours to prepare a sermon in mind. He says, always abounding, never ceasing to overflow in the, work, in the Lord's work. So what's the solution? If this is not how we live, what's the solution? Again, I think it's a deeper understanding of God's Word. It's an accurate understanding of the Gospel. It's an accurate view of the resurrection and therefore an eternal focus. Paul says the resurrection is real. 
that there is life after this one. You need to have your eyes set on eternity. And it's only then, it's only then that you will live in this way, always abounding. So having seen Paul encourage the church in Corinth to be firm in the faith and eager to serve, he now encourages them to be confident in Christ's promises. Number three, confident in Christ's promises. He says, verse 58, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. The word toil carries the idea of laboring with hardship. And it builds upon this idea of always abounding. The Christian life is not meant to be one of sloth. It's not even meant to be one of ease. Paul isn't telling the Corinthians, as I mentioned, to just volunteer a little in church. He's urging them to toil. The idea is to labor to the point of exhaustion. I've said this before and I believe it. I, I, I really desire, I desire to go out of this world in the pulpit. I desire to be being used of God, preaching His Word. There's no better way to die than to die doing this thing. To toil. And I'll tell you, there are times when it's Friday night, when it's Thursday night, when it's whatever night it is, when I get home from work, and the last thing I want to do in the flesh is prepare for this. That there are times when it's toil, it's hard work, it's laboring to the point of exhaustion. And I don't say that to puff myself up. Because there are plenty of times when I don't toil. When I don't labor to the point of exhaustion. But Paul is clear here. Laboring with hardship is what he has in mind. But Paul also wants them to know that their toil, that as they do this, he wants them to be encouraged. He says it's not in vain. This toiling that you do, it's not in vain. He wants them to know that if it's the Lord's work that they're doing, then it will not be fruitless. But instead, it will be fruitful. Because the Lord will accomplish His purposes. Because of the Gospel. Because of the resurrection of the dead. Because there is life beyond this one lived here. Paul says, your toil is not in vain. I walked into my office the other day to grab my things before going home. And as I walked in, I walked into, I hadn't been in my office nearly the whole day. I walked in and there was a, a tub of blackberries on my desk. And the only problem was that the tub didn't have a cover. So I looked at it for a few seconds and debated what I was going to do. Now I love blackberries, right? So I proceeded to strategically walk the blackberries to my car and place them in the car. And I thought, how am I going to get them home? And, and I, I made it all the way home. I labored to drive home without spilling them. I made it all the way home. And just as I was getting out of the car, they spilled all over the driveway. So when you come to my house and you see this big black spot on the driveway, it's because of the blackberries, right? All of my hard work, my toil, I, my, I labored to the point of exhaustion. That might be a bit of a stretch and exaggeration. But all of my hard work, all of my effort was in vain. But it's not so when we do the Lord's work. It's not like that at all. Though it may sometimes look like it. It may sometimes even feel like it. But it's not. 
God has promised that He will build His church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And He's miraculously chosen us to be part of the process. Paul writes this letter, writes these words, not to the pastor in Corinth, not to the elders in Corinth, not to the deacons in Corinth, but to the church, to everyone in the church. He writes these words, from the smallest, the youngest, to the oldest. He writes these words. And he says, all of that toiling is not in vain. So as we go out and we proclaim His Word, we need to remember that He tells us that His Word will not return void. That's Isaiah 55. As we seek to obey the Great Commission and make disciples, we can trust that He will indeed accomplish that very thing. You may be saying, but I'm not trained. I'm not this. I'm not that. I'm not... It doesn't... God has said that as you labor, it will not be in vain. He will accomplish that which He has intended to accomplish. 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 23-24 through says this, Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you entirely. He's called us to make disciples, and then he says, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, Now may the God of peace sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one who's going to grow us. He's the one who's going to keep us. And yet He calls us to help others grow. To me, He calls us to a job that, is, that has guaranteed results. It's like proclaiming the Gospel. I know that He calls people to Himself. All I need to do is just be faithful. He'll do the work. I'm just joining in that work. I'm toiling, but He's the one working. Verse 24, 1 Thessalonians 5. Faithful is He who calls you. And He will bring it to pass. He will indeed accomplish what He intends. Because He's faithful. Praise God for that. See, we can trust His promises. We can know that our toil is not in vain. And yet, far too often, we doubt His promises. We start thinking that our toiling is not worth it. That it's fruitless. That it is in vain. And what's the solution? Again, it's a deeper understanding of His Word. An accurate understanding of the Gospel clearer picture of His purposes and His will. A clearer picture of the resurrection. A clearer understanding of what it means to live with eternity in mind. I read this article, and I've quoted it here from this very pulpit before, but I think it bears, I think it's worth repeating. A quote from C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity, and then a quote from John Piper. C.S. Lewis writes, this is with regard to saying that there are some who are so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good. C.S. Lewis writes, a continual looking forward to the eternal world is not, as some modern people think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking, but one of the things a Christian is meant to do. It does not mean that we are to leave the present world as it is. If you read history, you will find that Christians who did the most for the present world were, th- were just those who thought most of the next. The apostles themselves who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. 
then John Piper goes on to say, Yes, I know, it is possible to be so heavenly minded that we are of no earthly use. My problem is, I've never met one of these people. And I suspect, if I met one, the problem would not be that his mind is so full of the glories of heaven, but that his mind is empty and his mouth is full of platitudes. I suspect that for every professing believer who is useless in this world because of other worldliness, because of heavenly mindedness, there are a hundred who are useless because of this worldliness. God calls us to have a clear view of eternity and live in light of eternity. Remember Romans 8.32 tells us that God will accomplish His plans, that He is faithful to His purposes, and that He will indeed freely give us good things. Romans 8.32 says, He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him over for us all, how will He not also with Him freely give us all good things? God gives us a promise in Romans 8.28, as I mentioned earlier. God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God, for those who are called according to His purpose. And then He reminds us in 32, and He says, and you can't doubt this. Why? Because He gave you His Son. He gave you Jesus. If He gave you Jesus, why would you think He will not freely give you all good things? He is faithful to His promises. So we can be confident in Christ's promises. So by way of review, 1 Corinthians 15.58 Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast. Be firm in the Gospel. Be immovable. Not easily shaken or distracted. Always. All the time. Untiring. Without exception. Abounding, overflowing, immeasurably more than what can be fathomed. Abounding in the work of the Lord, His work, not ours. Knowing, trusting, believing that your toil is not in vain. That it is not without result, but instead it is with result in the Lord. Because what He promises, He will bring to pass. So Paul encouraged the church in Corinth to be firm in the faith, eager to serve, and confident in Christ's promises. So here's the big question. So how do we apply all of this, both individually and corporately, specifically, here at Harmony Bible Church? I mentioned earlier that there were times this past week that were difficult. And in those moments, I don't think I would have said I was doubting God. I probably would have said that I was doubting the fruitfulness of my efforts. That sounds cute. Uh, but by the way, that's a way of doubting God. And through this text, I've been reminded of my need to persevere. My need to be firm in the faith, to be eager to serve, and to be confident in His promises. Last week I preached on the section just before this, as I mentioned, and I made the argument that the truth of the resurrection serves as motivation to share the Gospel and live a life of self-denial. And in preaching that message, it was my desire to spur you on to have an eternal focus, to see things in light of eternity, to be other-worldly minded, not this, not focused on the things of this world, to be heavenly minded. And yet, I must say, I was discouraged more than once throughout the week as I heard what I thought were some incredibly selfish comments from fellow believers. And in those moments, I began to think, is any of this worth it? 
frankly, I thought, I, I thought, are they even listening? Or maybe even worse, do they listen and agree, and then like James 1 says, go away forgetting what they have heard? And I began to think, here's what I began to think, much to my shame, I began to think, they need to hear this verse. They need to be reminded to be firm in the faith, eager to serve, confident in His promises. It was in those moments that God said to me, so do you, Jason. And I couldn't help but think of the Apostle Paul who wrote these words to the church in Corinth. Paul was a man just like you and me, and he needed to be reminded of these things as well. Yet he didn't shrink back from boldly saying them to the church in Corinth. He knew that he needed them just like I need them. But he didn't shrink back from also declaring them because he knew that these words didn't come from him, but that they came from God. So I want to boldly say to you, be firm in the faith, eager to serve, confident in His promises. Set your sights on eternity, folks. While also saying, Jason, be firm in the faith, eager to serve, confident in His promises. If we leave here having heard God's Word, and then we do not obey it? We're like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror and goes away only to forget what he's seen. If, however, we hear God's Word and not become a forgetful hearer, but instead an effectual doer, then, then we will be blessed in what we do. So, Harmony Bible Church, we need to remember the resurrection. We need to have an eternal focus. We need to focus less on building our own little kingdoms here on earth and be all about doing His work. We need to live in light of eternity. And I believe that means being firm in the faith. That means being eager to serve. That means being confident in the promises. Being firm in the faith, steadfast, deeply rooted in the truth of the Gospel, immovable, undistracted by life's trials or difficulty that may come our way. Being eager to serve always always abounding, always overflowing in the Lord's work. Specifically, evangelism, discipleship. Specifically, building the things that build His church being used for His glory. And those play out differently. We all have different gifts. They they're, they're play out differently in our lives. But the principle is still there. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. And thirdly, confident in His promises. Confident, knowing that your toil is not in vain, that it will produce the results that God has intended. And it's through that kind of lifestyle, a lifestyle where we we don't do these things in our own strength, but we do them in the strength that He provides, because it's His work, not our work. It's in that kind of lifestyle that I believe we will see Him doing immeasurably more than we could ask or imagine. So I've taken it upon myself to remind you of this verse again and again and again. And to remind myself of this verse again and again and again. We could almost make this our mantra. We could almost make this the the verse that we put on our mugs that we give to visitors. The the verse that we put on our bulletin. This This is what we are called to do. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain. If I had a goal for Harmony Bible Church for the next year, or five years, or ten years, it's the same goal as I have for my life. 
to be firm in the faith, eager to serve, confident in His promises. See, Christ has promised He will build His church. Christ has not promised He'll build Harmony Bible Church. The question is, are we His church? Are we going to be all about His work and building His church? We need to be serious about these things. My challenge to live in light of eternity, be firm in the faith, eager to serve, and confident in His promises. And that you hold me accountable to that as well. Let's pray. Father God, thank You for today. Thank You for Your grace. Thank You for Your mercy. Thank You for Your love. God, I thank You that You have reminded us of the resurrection. That You have given us an opportunity to think outside of ourselves. God, that the resurrection calls us to proclaim the gospel, to deny ourselves, that the resurrection calls us to be firm in the faith, eager to serve and confident in your promises. God, I pray that that would indeed be what our lives look like. God, that we would be all about your work. God, that we would be willing to deny ourselves, to sacrifice our own desires, for your glory. God, thank you for your grace. Pray and ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.